I think we should so, get started. That's Judy Okay. Uh, we're let's get started. We're starting late, and we have so much to cover as always. Um, the images on the PowerPoint during our study portion of the class are desert images that are by Phil, who I hope will come soon. So um, we've got, I think I've got like four or five of them. So enjoy. Well, Phil and I didn't plan this, but that's perfect to what we're going to be talking about. So maybe what, I just want to do a visual meditation for just a minute. Those of you who haven't been in the class before, sometimes they want to just... Sometimes you know, we do music or a kabana or some kind of meditation. Sometimes I just want to do a visual one. So just set your eyes on that for about 60 seconds and see what you see. Where do you see that in the shadow? No, in the, the swirl. In the swirl, right. it's just the top of the green, what looks like green bush. You're, you're close. I'm seeing it from afar. Yeah. Maybe that makes a difference. I think it does. Something else? Oh, I see. I'm trying to think that I it would look like a shin, the bush itself. But that okay. may be pushing it. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I can That's see that. And it's a I'm reveling in the texture in the yeah. foreground. Yeah. Yeah. And then, what's going on in that far corner? Yeah. And I just, you know, like all you know, the cloud, and, and I don't know what they're doing. I'm going to get closer, 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 you know, what's going on in that corner, because it's like a separate picture from the rest of the thing. So I love, and I love the high horizon. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Oh, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. It breaks the rules of, you know, the third, the third, the third, and it's just oh. wonderful. The negative space that's created by the blue. I don't know if you call it negative space, I don't know what you call it, but it's quite remarkable. One more comment, then we're going to ask Philip about the photograph. He's going to present later, too. Oh, okay. So um, then we'll wait. Yeah. Um, I just feel like a whooshing coming out from the kind of the upper left, and it kind of like almost like a windblown, because, uh, you know, like that. Around and the lines are just really yeah. beautiful. Kind of come so I heard texture, line, movement. I like the relationship between the big bush and the little bush. Okay. There's a dialogue going on there, I think. Relationship. If I were to say the word desert to you, just desert, we weren't looking at that image, would those words come up? If I were to just say desert and this was swinging turned around. 
we've had different kind of different set of words we've come up with today. Okay. Think of isolation, that relationship in a desert. Right. Heat, emptiness, maybe. The color is very different. The color, yeah. yeah. Than what would come up. Well, I didn't plan this. Yeah, <laughs> the vastness that you sense is one thing that I would yes. associate yes. with the yes. desert. Yeah. The sense that we could keep going and going and going, similar to when we talked about mountains last week, that your sense of perspective of how close and how near and how far things are. In a desert, you re your eye really, uh, you can't, there's something that the vastness and openness, and there's, it's limitless somehow when your eye looks at it. All right. So let's, because we're starting a little bit late, I'm not going to go back to the learning journal. So, but I've given you some notes about different mountains, and we are actually going to talk about a mountain in the desert very shortly. So this, these two landscapes really come together in some ways. Um, but <clears throat> I want to start, even, even though it's at the bottom of G, I want to take a look at Genesis. We've got a couple different images of mountains to look at and things that go on there. And our real focus is going to be on the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, which we're reading right now in the Torah cycle. In English, it's called Numbers because it begins with a census of a group of people. But in Hebrew, the name of this book is Bamidbar, which means there's an entire book of the Torah that it really, the title really is In the Desert. So it's really putting our attention into things that go on in the desert. And it's... One-fifth of the Torah is under the rubric of in the desert. And I think that's really important to think about. So. But let's take a look first at the Genesis passage. This is a quick one. Should be on page 78. When the What's the story? Joseph is sent out to look for his brothers, and he starts wandering across to Shechem. Starts wandering away, <clears throat> and the brothers see him from afar. This is that younger brother who brags all the time who they can't stand, and the other brothers hate him, and he's a dreamer. We know the story, right? They see him from afar, and before he came close, they conspired to kill him. They said, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we can say a savage beast devoured him. <clears throat> we shall see what becomes of this dream. But when Reuben heard it, he tried to save him and said, let's not take his life. Okay? And this is what Reuben says. Al <clears> tishpechudam. <throat> don't, don't spill blood over him. Hashlichu el habor Throw him into this pit. Throw him into a pit. So a pit in the desert. Asher bamidbar. Throw him into a pit that's in the desert. And don't raise your hand against him. So Ruben seems to have good motives here. He wants to save him in some way. They want to just murder him outright. But we have this image here of a boar bamidbar. Boar, one should hear the word boar, is similar to that word be'er, the well that we had before. Mm -hmm. It's just one little line difference in the Hebrew. Boar is a pit, be'er is a well, which we would also that well of water in the... In the um, We've talked about in terms of water in the in the desert, but bor bamidbar. So when we look at this, we don't we don't you see sand, we see sand. But what the text is asking us also to think about is that the wilderness midbar as a location, as a landscape, as a type of eretz, 
at a certain place has pits. What happens to somebody when they're thrown into a pit? What might happen to them? Let's, let's state the obvious, okay? Dropping into a pit in the desert is death. All right, and, and, that this, and that's what the brothers are conspiring to do in that course. Isn't what happened. Joseph is taken out of the pit and taken off to Egypt. But it's not just a pit. It's a bor bamidbar, a pit in the desert. I'm going to come back to that because when we look at the book Bamidbar, that image is going to come back in some way or that, that concept is going to come back. Now let's flip ahead to Exodus 3. And this could not have had a more beautiful rendition of this story. We didn't plan this. I'm dying to. The beginning. Who wants to read? I've been doing all the reading because the recording is on. Who Thank wants you. to read? What, what page are you on? On Exodus chapter 3, 116. One of the things you learn being in classes with me is how to flip around the Torah text. Uh, it's, a little, it's a little sidebar skill that I want to encourage people to have. All right, Lois. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb. All right, hold on, I'm going to read the Hebrew. Moshe haya ro'eh, ro'eh. He's a shepherd. The word ro'eh is spelled with an ayin, but it's like ro'eh si. Moriah. We talked about the word Moriah last week as a place of vision and awe, but the word Ro'eh, <coughs> the word shepherd, also has that idea of somebody who's a shepherd might be, while they're wandering around, might be having visions of some sort. It's the sound more than the spelling of the word that holds it together. So he starts wandering, he starts leading the flock, sort of achar habimbar, actually means after the wilderness, through the midbar. I'm going to use the word like wilderness and midbar back and forth because I want you to learn the word midbar. It's a really a conceptually a good word. After the wilderness, vayavo el har Elohim chorev, and he comes to the mountain of God in chorev. All right, so now you can, we can all imagine this scene, and somehow there's a mountain there. Okay. And after last week, just to repeat, that a mountain is something that requires you to lift up and look, lift up and receive a vision. All right, And that's what happens. Okay. Keep going. Thanks. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside to look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, here I am. All right, so this is, you've seen this in movies, you've seen this in cartoons, you've seen it with Charlton Heston, maybe some other actor. Okay. Moses. Right, that voice, all right. But I want, the word ro'eh, like to see, appears several times in these passages. Vayera malach, an angel appears, Vayar, and he sees it. Yes. Thank you. Good. Vayar, we feel better already. Okay. Asura, Asura. I'm going to turn the air at and see at Hamara at this at this great sight. Okay. So what are we learning about Midbar here? You can see things. You can see things in the desert. You can see things if a mountain. Now he's up on a mountain, but it's also. 
it's a place of seeing with a certain amount of clarity things that you don't see somewhere else. Okay, this bush. Oh. Sorry, I, I went it's to the next on one. Me. These, okay, let's look at that one now. This is, the first series are all fill-ups. Okay. Let's go back to the bush. Can I go back to the yeah. bush? Yeah. See, turn your back and look what happens. Where was it photographed? In the Kalahari. Wow. Oh. <coughs> God, I just assumed it was Israel, you know, now that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's like you transpose yep. on it, whatever. I'm glad you said that. The, these stories could be in the land of Israel, and we talked about how specific there are certain things about the, the things that happen in the land of Israel that, respect, that express relationship, and that's clearly what's going on here, because God's about to talk to Moses for the first time and say, you're my man, you're going back to Egypt, and, and your mission is about to be made, to be revealed, made seen to you. That's what you're going to see. But it's also really, I, I want to encourage everybody to think about all these things metaphorically in our lives. That's when we talked about Mount Niveau last week as a metaphor, the places in your life that you can't, the things that you can't accomplish in your life. That's not about the land of Israel at all. All right, so. I was just struck by something you said about seeing things in the desert in a different way or that you don't see elsewhere. And if you think about it, Deserts are dry, and so that there's a clarity of light and a clarity of vision that you don't get in yeah. other places where there's humidity yeah. and mist and fog. And also, I remember this in being in Africa, the heat also makes it the light shimmer. The, the right. concept of the mirage. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right, so, and these are all things that are affecting our vision, all right? So the landscape and our physical, what we bring to this physiologically seems to be interacting as well, so. All right, so this is, we've got, uh, he's, this mountain, Acharba Midbar, that one of the things about Midbar is that it is a place where vision can occur. Um, it just occurs, um, perhaps because there's not a lot of other visual stimuli interfering, perhaps. What's Moses do? What do we learn? He says, Asura. Asura is a beautiful word. It means I'm going to turn and see what's going on. That's what I was going to ask you. What exactly does that mean, to, start, to turn aside to look? Uh, you know I'm going to turn the question back to you. Okay. <laughs> you know I'm going to say. I can just say what the Hebrew says. What, what did we learn? First of all, um, Moses is already somebody previously. He looks here and there. When he's out, when he's still in Egypt, uh, this is going to take us on a sidebar, but it's worth going there. Um, when he sees the two, uh, the, the Egyptian taskmaster um, bugging this, he looks this way, he looks this way and that way, and that's when he kills the Egyptian, all right? So Moses is somebody who is, and what do good shepherds do? Anybody ever, every, anybody ever tended to a flock of sheep? Or, I, I, I had a chance to do this once. No, no, no. I, I don't want to take up the time. It's an amazing thing. It, it's, but you, you have to keep, your, your eyes have to keep moving on these flock because one might just you know, go this way. So Asura, Asura, it's beautiful, all right? And, and there's a way he says it, Asura na. Asura na, na has often has the sound of uh, please or prithee. It's like a, the poetic word, prithee, please. Let me turn, please, and see this great vision, hazeh. Etamare hagadol hazeh. There's a lot of superfluous words there, Lois, to answer your question. A lot. And reading the line slows us down. He doesn't say, asura ve'ere. You could say, I'm going to turn and see hamare. It says, Asura na. 
ve'ereh et hamareh hagadol hazeh. This great vision. Well, how do you tell if a vision is smaller? Vision is big. It's a bush. Then we find out it's just a bush he's looking at, but he's already called it a big vision, right? It's almost as if he knows it's there before he looks. Maybe. Because who's he asking because permission Because he's exhorting of? himself to, I better turn and look now. Like he, what I like is that Moses talks to himself just like I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a big one for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is um, it possible that he's trying to find an orientation point? Because hmm. uh, what I can tell you about the desert is if you walk 50 yards, you're not going to find your way back. Hmm. It's the most, it's very frightening. Yeah. And maybe he was searching for a point of orientation. Yeah, and the bush would be that for him. Interesting. And a bush that has a phenomenon, something going on. Wow. So there's there's a no turning back. I think wow. the, we were talking about the water and the, the desert, that you can see things with clarity in a desert. I think that for me, metaphorically speaks that when I'm when I'm fed with thirst, I don't really look for things because there's a status, there's a coolness and satisfaction. But when there's a dryness, I'm really looking and I'm searching for that focal point of, you know, God, where are you? So I'm wondering if you if you know that this on Shabbat we're going to read the Torah portion about Miriam who provides the well of water for the people dies, and immediately the people are we're thirsty we're thirsty we're thirsty, and so it's exactly what you're saying the people are <clears throat> they're looking for something that they don't have all of a sudden they get into a panic that's when Moses whacks the rock instead of just talking to it and it's bad for him so yeah I think that that's a hundred percent this notion of well, what are some of the sort of, I want to say theological ideas, the one about looking up for vision, then there's a thirsting for that's represented by wells of water, and now this idea of, of a vision or things that you turn to because there's no turning back because you can't find your way back. And I feel like, that Lois, to connect what, you, what Philip said when you said Lois, and, um, when he says there, asurana ve'eret hamareha gadol hazeh, why isn't it burning up? That somehow maybe he's trying to locate it. But you, the text is definitely slowing down and telling us something about this man. Because these are several chapters here. There are several chapters devoted to this encounter and conversation and his receiving of this, mis this mission. Because his vision is, changes the course of his life profoundly and ours. All right. And so there's a slowing down to let us really, it's almost as if we kind of get inside his voice and head and eyes to see how he's, how he's doing this. Beautiful. Now we're going to take your shoes off. Why do you want to tell somebody to take your shoes off when you're in the desert? I don't know, but that's what God tells him to do um, because it's holy ground. He's anticipating priesthood. Um, um, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, pretty, I would say, it's, I would not want to take my shoes off in the desert, but that's what he has to get close to. But and maybe that's the point, is that what he wouldn't normally do, God's telling him to indicate to him, like, this this space here is not like the undifferentiated midbar around you, that this place is kadosh, it's holy, it's separated off now. And so it's safe. It's safe to do it. Well, yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely, they take their shoes off. So, And they learned it from Moses. Okay, let's plow ahead. Chapter 13. I love how when we start to layer one text upon the other, that all this richness comes out. So string of pearls. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. 
So in chapter 13, this is Parshat Bishalach. This is right after they leave Egypt. Okay, chapter 13 is the last of the plagues, and that's when they finally go out of Egypt. That's the Torah reading to let us know Pesach, how to celebrate Pesach. Vayehi Bishalach Paro on page 140. Now, this is they're finally out. So where are the people? Now, the entire nation have crossed, or they're getting ready to. They haven't crossed through the water yet. The water hasn't split for them. They haven't had that experience yet. But when they first leave Egypt, they all en masse. Now you have 600,000 people <clears throat> who are entering a midbar together. This is the beginning of this movement, right? When, God, when Pharaoh sent them away, the nation, God did not lead them. That word nacham is fantastic because it's also the word nacham, nechama, comfort. But God didn't nach, like didn't lead them the way through the Philistine land. You would have thought that the AAA would mean like, okay, just go up, follow the coastline. Go through, Ga- just head that way and go through Gaza and you'll be there, right? Well, right, there's the map. Go that way. That's not what God does. Ki because that's too close. That would be the short way. That would be the easy way to go. That would make sense. Ki amar Elohim, because God says, They might, their hearts might turn. There's the word seeing again. In seeing war, they'll return to Egypt. They'll want to go back. So what does God know something about these people? What does God know about them already? They're wayward. Yeah, wayward. Yeah, yes, wayward is exactly what. Like, no, we're not going. And this is a repeating motif in the entire rest of the Torah, particularly in the book of Bamidbar in the desert. Why did you take us out here? We should have died in Egypt. And they start fantasizing about the food that they ate in Egypt. We missed the eggplant. That's what they say. We missed the eggplant. I like, you know. The milk. Yeah, we don't want this land of milk, and we miss it. They, and they are wayward. They're always fantasizing about things and wanting to turn back. And God seems to know that about them just after they got let out. It's fantastic. So what does God do? Vayasave Elohim et ha'am derech bar yamsuf. Vayasave. He turns them. Sevivon. Sov, sov, sov. It's the same Hebrew word. Vayasave Elohim et ha'am derech bar. The way of the midbar. Derech, the path. I love that. What you just said about there is no path in the desert. There is no such thing. Like you go five steps and you might not find your way back. So he's sending them into this landscape that is ironically without a clear marker. Okay? It's the it is really the opposite of Karov, what is close, what is point A to point B, what is easy to get to, that they would get to soon. Everything about it. They're being turned. Derech midbar yamsuf. This midbar, the, the sea of reeds. Okay? And, which is really interesting. Now the Israelites went up armed from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph. I just want to get to the end so we can see something else that is essential to midbar in this book. And Moses took the bones of Joseph, who exacted an oath from him, saying, God will take notice if you carry up my bones from here with you. I'm going to hold on to that. They schlepped Joseph's bones off for 40 years with them through the desert. And then they set out from Sukkot, and they camped at Eitan, Kibiktsei Hamidbar, at the edge of the wilderness. At the edge of the, now what is the edge of the wilderness? 
What could that possibly be? Maybe that this is a, a, a place where there's water where they camp. Okay. You could say, I mean, by the edge, it's sort of like when you think about Midbar, they think about the edge of it. It's like, it's just, I don't, I don't even know what that kind of evokes, and no turning back. What could be beyond the wilderness? It's like they're going to fall off the edge of the right. earth. Think about those old Renaissance maps, like going, going, going. Yeah. Psh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Don't know. But on the, but now look what look what is look what is there at the edge of Midbar. So what happens when they get out there? A pillar of cloud. Pillar of cloud. We didn't take on cloud as part of one of the landscapes, all right? But yeah, <clears throat> and that's not a pillar. We've corner. got more. Do we have? Let's see if we can find a pillar. Are there any with a pillar of cloud? I, I don't think so. Maybe. Huh. I saw this one. Where do you go? All right, take a look at those clouds. Those. That's not a pillar, but that's cloud. Okay. Huh? Whoa. I love this one. Whoa. And well, the last one kind of. Whoa. Where, where is that, though? Where is He's going to present later. He's going to talk oh, about it. Well, you can tell us where. Watch end. Watch end. end. Wow. Where is that? New Mexico. Oh. It's like up in the sky. <laughs> All right, well, so at the edge of this wilderness, no such thing exists in any other wilderness. I guess I would say, hi, Messia. So maybe we can say that at this particular midbar, this notion is an unnatural one that God is creating. Right? And Amut, just one cloud that appears as a pillar, and at nighttime it looks as a pillar of fire, some kind of a, okay, as a pillar of cloud and fire by night. Now if I were to say to you, do you think it's possible to see, well, I don't know, the northern lights or something like that, but a, a pillar of fire at night in the desert is not, that's one step beyond what we expect to see in natural phenomenon. Right. I think you would. You think you would see it? You could see it? Yeah. Just off the sunset, I think you would. You might see it? Okay. I keep thinking about the burning oil refineries <laughs> during the <laughs> Iraq War. That's what it looked like. Yeah. We used to go to Gary, Indiana. Yeah. But it wasn't the desert. No, I know. Well, Gary, Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of desert, but it is, yeah. Okay. You don't think of the burning bush, you know, that it's just here's this notion of fire and So something about Midbar here is this um, fire that's manipulated, light fire that's manipulated in some way. There's also not a lot in the desert to burn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, no. Unless it's oil. There, there are trees. Yeah, but not a lot. Not, not like what you think of. I mean, of course. there's a river right. forest or something. But then, then what do we say that when you see a phenomenon of fire, that it's not fire as we know it, it's some other kind of fire? It's light. It's light. Now that sounds biblical to me. That when you're when humans see, when we're interacting with this landscape and we see fire, it's really light or something else. That sounds to me like two things coming together. The part that we talked about is theological, Sandy. Okay. Okay. All right. So this is another one. God's turning them, and, and so you have a feeling like, why, why, why did, why didn't they go there? 
already from the very beginning, because we know that they end up wandering around for 40 years. They wander around that area for 40 years that they could have gotten to in a few days. But God turns them already from the beginning, and it seems to be, because he knows them, he knows something about them, but there's something about this turning or setting conditions for them to have this encounter with the cloud and the fire and the light and somehow over a sustained period of time as a group of people, as an am, as an am, that they're meant to have this kind of collective experience somehow in this landscape, in this midbar, this particular landscape. Well, the way I, at least I think about it is that they, they had a slave mentality and so then God had to present himself in a supernatural way kindness and mercy, so, you know, they, they were taken from a place of bondage, and somehow they were, their perception of Pharaoh, in, in a sense, was like a god, and now they said, no, this is who I am, I'm yeah. a light, I'm a, I'm a nurture, yeah, I'm a yeah. love, that kind of mercy. Yeah, yeah. And without boundaries, and without right. boundaries. Yeah. Right. yeah. I keep thinking of the desert, of this vastness, one form, but actually, when you think about it, it's just each grain of sand. Mm -hmm. And maybe, I mean, the idea, you know, we're thinking about them as a people and what they're going through, but all the different thoughts that each of them are going through and the individual little situations and things, I keep thinking about these yeah. grains of sand coming together. I love it. Marlon, I didn't plan this. <laughs> when we make Havdalah, from going from Shabbat into the week, we say Hamadil ben Kodesh lechol, from the holy, the place where you take your shoes off, lechol. Now, we're going from holy time to what's the opposite of holy in modern in, in Mundane. English? Mundane or secular, right? Something. Do you know what the word chol means? Sand. One grain of sand. Chol means sand. I'm going to say that again. The opposite of holy is a grain of sand, undifferentiated. Well, I love what you just said. I mean, you, could, you could spend a lot of time thinking about that now. So we have all these individual grains of sand who are in some ways ordinary, collective, just who they are, coming into contact with the Kodesh, the holy, this light, this light that comes from somewhere. Okay. These relationships that are, that are and, your, and your vision and all those kind of things. So, now there's a different way of talking about the people going out of Egypt, isn't it? Okay. All right. Skip ahead to 15. Can I interrupt uh, for a moment? I don't normally do this, but the, the beginning of my presentation is exactly this concept. Let's go for it. So I just want to show you a couple pictures. Good. I'm taking you. Um, this is by Gidon Levin, who uh, was in the Israeli army. And he did these uh, photo series. And this one is... Um, Enthusiastic teenagers, soon to be soldiers, preparing for draft day. Fueled by innocence and youth, stories and dreams, expectations, aspirations, and a zest of flock mentality. Mm. What wow. do we know about their driving force? And what do they know about what lies ahead? This is how they look like a moment before reality comes pouring down on them. They are the whole. Yes, they are. Now let me show you wow. what he moves to then. This is his portrait of... This is actually called Friends. This project refers to his uh, military service in the paratrooper brigade. Being strangers once, we become one family. Visual language seeks to be clean and adapts to the reality. Wow. What are those? 
I think it, it's liquid. They're. They look like. I gear. think they're like metaphors for the people, and maybe they're their gear or their clothing kind like of balled up. The I'm going to show you three images, and I'm, I don't want to no, no, interrupt, this but this is this illustrates exactly the concept you're talking about. Yeah. I think they're fabric. They're they're military clothes. They look like military, yeah. they look like so one is the humans in a mass, and and this is like the shell for the human beings. What goes around them. Okay, I'll just. I'm going to go back one thing because I want to look at the light in the desert there and how. Okay, I can just leave it. Out. <coughs> We are just thinking alike here. <laughs> I, I, you know. What's his name? Giron Levin. I just want to say as a teacher, it's our conversation that layers on where we get to this. I, Jude, we could plan all week. We would not get to the place unless Marla just said what she said about the sand. And so that's what I love about working with you guys. I really do. So, All right, chapter 15. Um, so they come out. They come out of. You can see that. And, and Sylvia, this is a this is a passage for you to identify on page one forty six. As soon as they come out of the sea, right? Because what came right before was the song of the sea. They start looking. They have no water. They're looking for water, and they start complaining, right? And that's when God makes the water for them. So this sense of longing is is it's right there. There's a couple places in the Torah. So if you want to pursue that, some more thinking about it, you almost want to like write down like ah, that's where I want to look. If you want to look, if I can't reach me, like where's that passage again? So all right. So um, in in chapter 16, the first thing that starts to happen to the people is that they get hungry and they start grumbling. And they start complaining to God, we don't like the food. Okay? We don't want this. And, and then God sends manna and quail as a way of feeding them so they will also recognize God. God is continuing to take care of them. But also it's to form a certain kind of discipline that the quail feeds them. And they have to gather a certain amount every day. Okay? And on the sixth day, there's going to be a double portion for the week because there won't be any on Shabbat. Okay? So the reason I say is that inside the Midbar are certain key experiences that are meant to be instructional for the people from God's perspective. How is God going to take this group of undifferentiated slaves and turn them into a disciplined nation of people who when they get to the mountain will be able to receive and enact, follow, hear, love, do, observe, all those words take in the other messages that God has, wants to give over on the mountain them to build as a community right instead that starts to happen as part of this midbar experience of how you're going to eat when you're out in a place where there's no, nothing to eat okay so I was going to put that in there as a matter and this is important because we're going to come back to this again in Bamidbar that God is that the midbar is a it's a schoolhouse, I almost want to say. The Midbar, because there's nothing else around, this empty space is a space that meant, is meant to forge them and instruct them in particular ways. Now we know this because if you look in Deuteronomy, at the end of his life, when Moses starts recapitulating to the people what happened for 40 years, he comes back to this. On page 392, Three 
כל המצווה שאנוכי מצווך היום תשמרון לעשות, למען תחיון. ורביתם ובאתם וירשתם את הארץ אשר נשפעת ענה עליו אתכם. Everything that I'm, every single little instruction that I'm telling you today, I'm enjoining, I'm commanding you, I'm begging you, he basically says, I'm begging you to do this, that you may thrive, chayun, you'll live, and increase and be able to possess the land. The way out of the midbar, from Moses' perspective as he talks to the people, is these mitzvot, it's these instructions, it's this pathway of life. It's the way out, and he's trying to get them ready. And then he says, kol Do you remember this whole way that you went? Asher Adonai Elohecha. That God made you walk for 40 years. Remember this derach. We already talked about the derach. <coughs> this way, derach hamidbar. You, you walk this way in the desert. That God 40 arba'im shana ba'midbar in the desert. Why? Lema'an anotcha l'nasotcha ladad. In order to... Uh, try you and test you to know if it's in your heart, if you're going to if you're going to keep these commandments or not. Okay. And Lois, want to keep reading? Start line three. Yeah. On 393. I'm sorry. I get carried away by the Hebrews and then I forget. Yeah. So now look at oh, how. He subjected you? Is that what you want to read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He subjected you to the hardship of hunger and then gave you manna to eat which neither you nor your fathers had ever known, in order to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but that man may live on anything that the Lord decrees. The clothes upon you did not wear out, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. Bear in mind that the Lord your God disciplines you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God, walk in his ways, and revere him. Right. Now the next part, he's going to say, are you going to a good place or what? He says, <laughs> pomegranates, vines, figs. Okay, Moses is, he's like, like he's painting for the, the real estate that is to come, all right? <laughs> but what is he saying? So as he's saying, remember, remember this Midbar experience. Moses is concretizing the wandering. It's not just a trip they took, but he's concretizing a Midbar experience for them. So what is, what is, remember that bush, he doesn't say, remember that bush we went by, remember that time we saw this, remember this, he, he does that later, he do, actually does do that. But in this particular place, this, he's really in a concentrated way, is talking about why they wandered and what he wants them to remember and what's the purpose of this 40 years of being in this place. And so what, the verb lehulich is also to guide. Yes, yes, to guide you, to, to make you go and to guide you, yes, yes. So what does that mean to you, to guide that? Yeah. Well, how is he shaping this experience for them? I, I just was struck by um, uh, the Zaharta because we're exhorted to remember so much as Jews. And I just thought, how does that work in other cultures? And a lot of heritages or religions or faiths, you, you want to remember your ancestors or you want to remember a place. And this is remembering experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's really significant. To, to hold, you have to, yeah, that, that's Deuteronomy language. You've got to remember this. You, you create the memory so you can hold on to it. Yeah. And, it's very abstract, though. Well, it is very abstract, but Deuteronomy is the asita, and you have to do something with it. Okay? That's, that's, that is Deuteronomy language. Remember some experience, hold on to it, and do something. And here's the instruction manual. Okay. That's Judaism in a nutshell. Right? Yeah, it's anti materialist.
Uh, it's not associated with us, uh, with the ancestors. Uh, specifically, it's not necessary. I mean, there is that, right, and and a place, but not as much. It's the it's the it's the ethics. Yeah, and, and, and the, the teaching some way. journey. Yeah. Look, it says your shoes didn't wear out. I love that. He says your shoes didn't wear out for forty years. Your feet didn't. I love this. Your feet well, didn't swell. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like it's right. <laughs> it's for You're a walking, it was a piece of cake, right? And you had whatever you needed to eat. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep thinking when I'm reading this, forty years it seems like such a long time. But then I think to myself things. I thought I've been friends with somebody for forty years. It doesn't it's seem nothing. that long. Yeah, it doesn't seem that yeah, long. Yeah, it doesn't seem that long. Yeah. Now here's the kicker. Well, here's well, here's the kicker. So here's the kicker. Look at chapter. Look at numbers on page two seventy seven. So we're not going to look at the Isaiah pieces, which are two seventy seven, beginning of Bamidbar, the beginning of the book in the desert. And here I'm going to be leaping a little bit to my, my idol, Aviva Zornberg's uh, book that came out last year about Bamidbar. Here's the kicker. On the first day of the second month in the second year following the exodus from Egypt. So not too long after they left, Lord spoke. He says, count the people. Count them by clans and ancestors. And you don't even, we don't even need to read all the names. You can see that we have a census list here. Bamidbar Sinai, while they're in the desert. So this book is, whoever called it Numbers saw the census and says, oh, it's a book about numbers, and there's a lot of censuses. It's a book about what happens in the desert. Now, what are the critical things that happen to the people while they're in this desert? And this is important. Just look at chapter 14 really quickly. Because I want to make sure that we look at these other, these midrashim. Because this is where it, like, really gets to you. Probably on 314, am I right? At 315. They wander and they get all organized and lined up and they've that the military, the troops, they're ready to go into the land after they've been wandering for two years. Should have been enough time. Manna comes down in order for them to be trained, to remember and everything. And they say, We're gonna send these spies into the land. We just read this a couple weeks ago. Send spies into the land and come back and give us a report. What does it look like? What does it really look like? Okay. And they come back, and Joshua and Caleb say, we can take those Philistines. And the rest of the spies say, oh, no, we can't take, oh, no, the people are giants. We're puny like grasshoppers. We can't conquer that land. We can't do it. We just can't do it. And God gets really angry. God gets really angry, <clears throat> as he did before at the golden calf. He says, I'm going to kill them right now. Moses, I'm going to make a new nation out of you. I want to kill them right now. Moses says, you can't, can't kill him. You made a promise, you can't do it. But look what he says here, line 26. How much longer will that community mutter against me? Very well, I've heeded the muttering of the Israelites and say to them, God says, as I live, says the Lord, I will do to you just as you've urged me. Bamidbar hazeh, line 29. Bamidbar hazeh your corpses are going to drop in this very desert, in this place, your corpses are going to drop. Of all of you who are recorded from the age of 20 up, you have muttered against me, you will not go into the land. 
and he keeps saying, your carcasses are going to drop. Your children will roam the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because we've had friends for 40 years. But that's how long 40, 40 is that number. God says, enough for a new generation who never was in Egypt, who have only been in this desert experience. Something about this profile of seeing, hearing, innate, and vision, relying on God. Somehow God identifies that he can't work with that generation. That, that he's done. Can't do it. So your carcasses will drop in this wilderness. That's why I wanted us to focus on the Bor Bamidbar. That, that, that for four, 38 years, the Midbar becomes a place where one body after another drops into a pit, mm-hmm. and the sand covers them. The term okay. Dor Hamidbar Dor Hamidbar. is used now. I mean, for people who came, and they came from all over, and it's not the nation, and they said Dor Hamidbar. Wow. In, 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 in slang Hebrew? Yeah. You mean it's I mean, the, the business-speaking term. I mean, it's really... Um, uh, yeah. So how would you use it? How would you? People who didn't uh, really adjust yet and didn't have, uh, you know, didn't become part of uh, the character and all that. So is it a racist thing or is it a negative thing or just a judgmental of somebody who never succeeds uh, at making Aliyah? No, it's just saying, I don't know, it used when when I was a child, I don't know if they use it now, but for people who just came from all over and then they didn't yet become... Assimilate, yeah. 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 Wow. There's a piece of artwork in that. It's not, it's but not. they're outsiders. Maybe. Yeah. And it's no, they like, haven't adapted. They have what you mean they haven't adapted to a different way of thinking? It's not, it's not racist, I think. It's just yeah. Yeah. claiming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's this, I want to sort of focus in about the Midbar now, in the book of Bamidbar, okay, that as a place where 600,000 people die, while they're one, uh, anybody, actually that's not 600,000, but an entire generation of people, one after another after another, that people are, as they're wandering in this place, we have this fantasy of it as the spiritual place, and they get to the land, and it's this piece, I think, that's so beautiful, because the Midbar itself, the sand covers this, and we don't hear about it. We don't read about it. We have these few places where God says, this is what's going to happen to you, okay? And in the Parsha this week, Chukat is when we start to see the next generation is getting ready. Miriam dies. Aaron dies, and they're getting ready to go into the land. But do you know that the word Elide? The word Elide? 38 years in the book of Bamidbar slip by and are not mentioned. Are not mentioned. If you look at the tags of this happened in this month and this year, this month and this year, and in this book of Bamidbar, we hear about the first few years, this beginning when they're getting ready to leave, and then we're suddenly in the 40th year when they're getting ready to go into the land. And what happened in between is this generation. That's why it's really important to know a little bit about Parshat Shlach Lecha. It's also in Kol Nidre. Shlach Lecha is in Kol Nidre. I'm not going to say more about that. That's another class. Okay. So 38 years of this experience of this, your, this desert generation, they, they literally, and you and in here where you literally you sort of think about the sand just sort of blowing over and covering, covering up what was there before. So now I want to take a look at a couple of midrashim. We have time, a couple of minutes, yeah. Three takes, three midrashic takes on the word midbar. One is this sad one. Um, actually, look at, let's, um, so look on the back side for a second. That's the second one. I want to go back to the to the previous one, which is a little bit more uplifting. I don't want us to like start like this is where they died. I don't want to leave you there before the 
Aviva's are in the, it's the second one. The Midbar is a horizontal space, unbroken and unmarked. But out of it emerges Mount Sinai, bringing the people to a long standstill, while the living voice of God speaks and demands. They park there for a, at least a year or two. From the Midbar, too, emerges the tabernacle, a human construction housing God's presence and voice. From here, the command comes to count the people. Here, 600,000 individuals are to be numbered in relation to their clans and tribes. In the end, these individuals who constitute the structures of order and significance in the wilderness will be defeated by the wilderness. One by one, to the last one, they will sink into the sands and vanish. In this world of Midbar, where in the end nothing counts, how are we to think of the enterprise of counting, of creating significant connections and structures on the sand? Yeah, so that's, yeah. This, those of you who love poetry, this, she writes very poetically, so mm -hmm. it's beautiful. So one way to think about Midbar at this more meta level is a place uh, where of nothingness, where nothing counts. So how do you think about counting and signaling human life, activity, experience that comes out of it. And one of the things she talks about a lot is uh, the philosophy of nihilism, which I know nothing about. Where is Phyllis when we need philosophy? Okay, That great-grandchild got in the way of her being in class. All right, Nihilism, is, or that sense of like nothingness. How do you go on and how do you live life based on an understanding that there's nothingness? So that's a, another way that Midbar is, is moving us. It's not just a desert scene. It's pointing to a set of really potent ideas of nothingness. Interesting. Uh, when it says about Korach, that the land opened its mouth, yes. but maybe in the desert, it's the wind covers and covers and you don't know its thing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. One of the stories Nasi is talking about is a group of people who get up and they say to Moses, how come you're the leader? Kulanu Kedosh, we're all holy. He says, we're all holy. We're not saying we're all holy. And God gets mad at him. Moses can say, well, let's just see what God has to say about this. And Korach, 250 of his followers, they challenge him. A big pit opens in the desert and swallows him. So you're right, the sand, they go down into a pit, into the ground. So this image of when the people get punished, like a pit opening and down they go, down they go. All right. But for everybody else in the sand, maybe the sand just covered them. We think, we think about quicksand or, you know, that kind of, you know. Seems like an important word here too is for me is creating significant the word creating because we are there are connections but the creating part of the significant yeah. connection. So what does it mean to you? I think you're hundred percent right. I think that that's one of her point. Yeah. What does it mean to me personally? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it means makes me responsible. Yeah. For. Yeah. I. I yeah. I. I, I think somebody wants to say, yeah, I heard somebody, I heard a piece. I have a bit of a problem with the nihilism of this uh, particular writer because the desert is not nothing. There's a great deal of activity in the desert. Yeah. Um, maybe not a lot of people walking around, but um, there are a lot of animals and uh, flowers. flowers oh, that's which yeah. grow on one day, which bloom on one day a year. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of creepy crawlies, particularly snakes, which uh, it's better to stay away from. And uh, there's a lot of activity. I don't think she's suggesting that. I think that I think that you're right, and and I think that when she's talking about she's talking about 
Um, I think she's talking about human nothingness. Absolutely. Oh, she's totally, totally, totally. I think that what she's saying is that in the confrontation of all of this death that goes on without being marked is a certain human condition of nothingness or our own demise that is part of the human condition from which creativity springs as a way to to address that. But she's not, I don't think she's, I, I don't at all think she's saying that the desert itself is nothing, but um, but this particular event of what it, what it says about the people um, is is being evoked in some way. Um, I, no, go ahead. I thought when she said in the end nothing counts meant it's too late to change the decree. Like, no matter what you do, I've decided here's how this is going to play right. out. Right. And so it sort of, you know, almost doesn't right. kind of matter. Right. You're going to have to right. kind of serve out this punishment. Yeah. I thought of it in a different way, um, which I'm going to get into in a moment, but I thought of it in the sense that there's the desert, the, the wilderness is a place of lawlessness. There's no social structure, so nothing counts. You do what you want. I mean, that's just in a yeah. larger context. Yeah. I thought of it that way. Let's look at the other two texts, because I, I she, she has several things to say about Midbar, and I want to get to the other. One is this place of this, this generation and confronting nothingness or emptiness. Let's just say, confronting it. And he drove the flock to the first wilderness. That's when we read about Moses. Where are we now? On the, on the flip side, again, the first, okay. this is a midrash that she counts. Rabbi Joshua said, why was he in the pursuit of the wilderness? What was he doing out there? Moses saw that Israel was raised up from the wilderness, as it says in Song of Songs. Who is this who rises from the wilderness? Anything time the Song of Songs is in a midrash, it's about God and Israel loving each other. Not, it's the opposite of nihilism. Who is this who rises from the wilderness? They had the manna from the wilderness, and the quails, and the well, and the tabernacle, and the divine presence, priesthood, kingship, and the clouds of glory. There is, it's no, there's not nothing in the desert. Okay, the opposite. There's all this stuff in the desert. All of these gifts that God gave the Jewish people all came from the desert. <clears throat> Wilderness, midbar, is in essence language, dibur. Midbar, if I were to write in Hebrew, midbar and midaber, and didn't put the dots on, you would not be able to tell the words apart. Midbar and midaber, desert and speaking, are the same in Hebrew. Ein midbar eladibur. There is no wilderness except for speaking. As it is said in the Song of Songs, your lips are like a scarlet thread, your mouth Midbarech is lovely. There's a poetic word, but the word mouth there is your talking place. It's lovely. Right out of poetry. See, we need poetry in order to understand these texts. So this comes to your question, like, I don't agree. And she would say exactly. Jewish tradition says it, it's, it is something about the um, not absence, but pristine quality of the Midbar that allows speech, it, real encounters of speech to happen. That's why the desert is where the mountain, Mount Sinai, is. That's where the tabernacle is built, where God can speak to them and they can speak. Okay. Now here's one more. Rabbi Barakia said in his verse, I am the Rose of Sharon. Ani Sharon, Song of Songs, was spoken by the wilderness. It's turning metaphors. The wilderness, the Midbar is speaking. The wilderness says, I am wilderness and I am beloved. For all the good things in the world are hidden in me. As it is said, 
I will plant cedars and acacia in the wilderness in Isaiah. Now, one of the things you should know about Isaiah is that the messianic prophecies of Isaiah, it's always, who's coming out of the desert? What's happening in the desert? The desert will light up again. The desert will spring up again. It are, are part of his visions about um, in Isaiah. God gave them to me in trust, and when he asks them of me, I will return the trust in full, and I will become full of sap with good deeds, and I will sing in his presence, as it says. The wilderness and the parched land will rejoice. Okay, So the wilderness is a place that holds on to potential, holds on to spiritual potential, the place where God first said, I love you, I'm going to teach you all this stuff. You, the next generation, I'm addressing you, all of the potential, and the clarity of possibility in the relationships happen. Everybody's potential, so at a certain point, it can spring up and, and um, well, well it, it exactly said, well, a flower will blossom in one day. But that's a, in Midrashim, that's another way of thinking about Israel's potential. Not, these are complicated ideas, so I'm always going like, to give them to you like to sit on and think about. Last one. Oh, and this is Aviva on this Midrash. All good things in the world are hidden in me. Within her arid void, the wilderness holds much beauty, much moisture, as well as much death. She is the container of infinite potential, held in trust against the moment she is required to restore it to God. Her very blankness holds untold imaginative possibility. The moment of realization is the moment when the wilderness itself breaks into song. And that's why, in some ways, the beauty of the wilderness is, is, this, uh, is those pieces. So. Now, this last piece, about we're going to stop here, but this last thing about poetry I want us to come back to. But maybe we'll just read the last lines, because this is from Michael Fishbane's book. Um, the poet is always at the precipice of verbal possibility. And both from the beginning of any poem and repeatedly with each of its words speaks from this borderland. Do we have time just to read this? No. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to this. Yeah. Oh, good. So this is a lot. We just did a lot. I just want to, I just want, like, Midbar is this metaphor of all kinds of things, well beyond just what the experience of being in the Midbar is like. So, so let's take a very brief break, and then we will reconvene 